somebody came up to me at church a couple of weeks ago, and they said, Alice, um, do you think we're in the last times, last days? And I, you know, with all the hurricanes and the flooding and the mass shooting, with all the political unrest, the global unrest, and that undercurrent that we all feel, fear. Sure seems like the floodgates of hell have opened up, doesn't it? We are living in hard times, for sure. But the thing about hard times is that it exposes what lies underneath the surface of our lives, right? The real us comes out. And that's why in hard times you often see wonderful heroic acts. You know, neighbors helping neighbors, total strangers risking their lives to save other people. And at the same time, you see acts of cowardice, right? Hoarding gasoline and water, creating shortages for others. Vandalism, uh, people trampling other people to save their own lives. I often wonder how I would react if faced with a, a really dire situation. Because I know my own heart. I know that sometimes fear can make me so self-protective that it's very hard to think about other people. And yet, I think we all long to be the heroes in our stories, don't we? I'm the hero in all my daydreams. How about you? <laughs> and as Christians especially, we want to be the agents of rescue in our world, right? We want to be the bearers of hope and peace and goodness in a world that is full of despair and chaos and evil. And we know that the gospel calls us to this. We know that Jesus is the real hero in all of our stories. And he calls us to go deeper into our community and farther out into our world. But we're going to have to grab a hold of something that's stronger than our fear. Stronger than our tendency to hunker down and be self-protective and think only of ourselves. So where do we find that power, that strength, that will, that courage that the gospel calls us to? Well, the answer to that question lies in our story as the people of God. So allow me just a minute to um, walk with you through that as uh, the context for our lesson today. So about seven centuries before Jesus, at a very troubled time in the history of Israel, God spoke to his people through a prophet named Joel about a future day um, of hope, a, a future reality. And he said these words in Joel chapter 2. He said, I will pour out my spirit on all kinds of people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And some six to eight hundred years later, the risen Christ told his followers to wait for the gift that God had promised them. He said, you will remember from Acts chapter 1, he said, you shall receive power and you will be my witnesses. And that's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Spirit descended with a deafening noise upon those praying disciples. Tongues of fire split apart and rested on each of them so that they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to, to preach God's wonders in every language of the known world at that time. And Peter's explanation of that phenomenon was that the prophecy had come to pass, 
This is it, he said. This is the dawn of a new era. Because if you go back and read that passage in Joel, you will understand that the pouring out of the Spirit signals the beginning of the end. When God will judge the nations and then he will renew and restore the earth and he will dwell upon it with his people in peace. Now what wasn't clear to the Jews, indeed Paul said it was a mystery to them, was that there would be a gap of time between the pouring out of the Spirit and the restoration of all things. They had no idea that the pouring out of the Spirit would give birth to something called the church. The church is a compound word in the, in the language of the Bible, and it literally means called out. When God poured out his spirit, he called out a people unto himself from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Sissy's lesson a couple of weeks ago was a beautiful explanation of that. You and I are part of that movement that God began. We are living in a, a very unique time in history. We are living in what people like to call the church age. And we, the church, have a job to do, and we have the power to do it. And when it's done, then the end will come. So in answer to that gentleman's questions a couple of weeks ago, yes, we are in the last days. We have been in the last days since Pentecost. Whether or not we're in the last, last days, I have no idea. I just know we're living in troubled times. But it is in times of trouble that historically the church has been at her finest. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. The church in Acts was just a baby church. But they were courageous and they were powerful. We're all sitting here today because of the impact they made on their world that had ripple effects thousands of years later even today. They were the difference makers at a time when their very existence as the church brought trouble on them. But they didn't shrink back in fear. They soldiered on and they became an unstoppable force. And we are the recipients of their legacy. And this is our moment in history to be the church, an unstoppable force for the gospel. And that's why I had you spend a few minutes in your groups today getting your brains warmed up a little bit about what the church is and what the church does because that's where we're going this morning. It's kind of ironic that Andy talked about this in church on Sunday from the perspective of Ephesians 4. But we're in Acts, and so we're going to press our faces up to the window of that little church. And we're going to see two beautiful images. We're going to see a beautiful and challenging picture of what the church is. And then we're going to shift our focus and we're going to um, look at, uh, see a beautiful picture of what the church is called to do. So that's where we're going. So if you have your Bibles or your devices out, please turn with me to Acts chapter 4. Um, we're going to start in verse 23. Now our lesson started in verse 32, but we need to pick up the immediate context from last week's lesson. If you'll remember, Peter and John had been thrown in jail uh, for preaching the gospel, but now they have just been released from, pr from prison and the religious elites have warned them not to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And so verse 23 says, on their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. 
Just, just stop just a minute on that phrase, their own people. The context lets us know that it's not talking about their own families or their, or their own homes. It's talking about other believers who are their own people. It says, when they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Now go down to verse 31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God courageously. So this is where we begin to see what the church is, and we're going to build on this idea as we go along. The church is a spirit-filled community. We'll talk about what that community will look like in just a minute, but what about this idea of being spirit-filled? What does that mean? Well, being filled with the Spirit means that when you trusted in Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your heart. Your heart meaning your entire inner being. Okay, your mind, your will, your desires, your emotions, your entire inner life. The Holy Spirit filled you up with himself. He filled you up with something new, a new kind of love that generates new desires, new thoughts, even new abilities. Romans 5.5 puts it this way. God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. It doesn't mean that our, our old heart is gone. As a matter of fact, Paul talks a lot in his letters about how now there's this perpetual struggle going on inside of us between the old self-love, self-protective love, and the new God love that he's poured out into our hearts. And you'll remember that Jesus told his disciples in John 13 that it would be their love for one another that would be the power behind their witness, right? Not their sermons, not their miracles, their love. And guess what? Love doesn't happen in a vacuum, does it? We have to be connected to one another in deep and meaningful ways. And in fact, Jesus defined and modeled what that love needs to look like when he said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. In other words, love equals sacrifice. And that's exactly what we see going on in the Acts church not only is the church a spirit-filled community, but it is a spirit-filled, sacrificial community. So let's keep, keep reading about what that looked like, starting in verse 32. It says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. Can you imagine that? One in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all, so that there were no needy persons among them. No needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned houses or land sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, I don't know about you, but I think what I just read was nothing short of miraculous. Only the Holy Spirit of God can create that kind of unity and that kind of self-giving love. The early church practically lived together. They were all 
up into each other's lives. They, they mingled their lives together so that it was one life, a shared life. They gathered together every day and they shared spiritual stuff like prayer and celebrating Lord's Supper and, and the apostles' teaching, but they also shared earthly stuff like food and, and their homes and, and their possessions and their money. Whatever they had, they shared it. Now, the Net Study Bible points out that their practice of holding all things in common, that's what some translations say, was not a, a reflection of any political philosophy, but it was um, a spontaneous commitment to one another. See, no one commanded or coerced or manipulated them to live that kind of a life because no power can command it. No power can create that kind of a life. It was the love of God poured out into them by the Holy Spirit, not any kind of law that motivated them. They seemed to understand by God's Spirit at a very visceral level that they shared the same spiritual DNA, that they are family, and families look out for each other, often in very sacrificial ways, right? So let me ask you, is that how you view the church as your people, as your family? Do you feel that sense of belonging, of ownership, of responsibility? Sometimes I get asked by other pastors' wives and other churches, if I'm involved here, like especially in women's Bible study, because I'm the senior pastor's wife and I kind of ought to be here. <laughs> and it, that question always surprises me because I never think of it that way. But in a sense, I, I would say yes. And in, a, in some way, I do feel a responsibility to you, my sisters. But I hope you feel that way toward me as well. The real reason I'm here is because I love you and I want to be with you. But I also need you. And I like to think that you need me too. Because I need to hear your stories about what it looks like to walk with Jesus in this life that gets very hard sometimes. And I need to hear your victories and your failures and you need to hear mine. And I need to hear you pray for me because sometimes I cannot pray for myself. And you need to hear me pray for you because sometimes you cannot pray for yourself. And we all need to gather and listen to the word together so that we can be on the same page, so that we can encourage one another and challenge each other to live in ways that honor God and make him known in our world. And that means we have to sacrifice other things to be here, doesn't it? But family life is so much more than what happens on Tuesday morning or even Sunday morning at church. We need each other at all times and hours and days sometimes to lighten the load when life gets hard. On Sunday, if you were here, Andy told a beautiful story about Benny and his group of, of, of men that came together for him at a hard time. It was, if you've not read that story in the chatter, uh, please grab it, listen to it online. But you know, Andy and I personally have experienced something like that. When Andy went through cancer years ago, and it was so bad, so many of you um, brought us meals. You wrote encouraging notes. We still have a huge basket of notes that we just can't bring ourselves to give away or to throw away. You prayed for us over and over for months on end, and you brought us through a very dark time because that's what families do. But there are also practical things that, that families need to teach each other 
I may have told you before, but I'll never forget when I was a young wife and mother, our own Jan Fanning taught a little group of us. She, she taught a little cooking class at the old church in the old kitchen. And, and I'll never forget, she taught us how to get three meals for six people out of one chicken. <laughs> Can you believe that? It was awesome. <laughs> She sacrificed her time and her energy and, yes, her hard-won money, earned money to buy the food so she could teach us how to cook on a budget. And along the way, she gave us all sorts of wisdom about marriage, about raising kids, about saving money. It was beautiful. Thank you, Jan. <laughs> the beautiful picture of the church that we are seeing in Acts is, is the picture of an ideal community, right? Living by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was miraculous and it was costly at the same time. And it's therefore both wonderful and scary to think about being part of something like that, isn't it? It's scary to think about sharing your life that fully and your stuff because that means that maybe you go without something. And it's scary because you become vulnerable as you share real things about yourself as you journey along the way. But if any one of those people in the early church were here with us this morning, they would say, go for it. It is so worth it. The thing that is greater than your fear is the Spirit of God within you. You have the same power we did to invest in the relationships like that, to be fully engaged in, in um, other people's lives in sacrificial ways. They would tell us, trust the power you have to go deeper into your church community. And you need to do that because there is a power that is working against you. See, the Bible is nothing if it's not real and honest. As good as it looked, all was not well in that little church in Acts. See, there's this couple named Ananias and Sapphira. Their story in chapter 5 helps us to define further what the church is. The church is a spirit-filled, sacrificial community of imperfect people. Anyone disagree with that? <laughs> the church has never been perfect. It never will be. That's because it's made up of forgiven and yet still sinful people. Knuckleheads, I think Andy called us on Sunday. <laughs> we have a natural bent towards sin and self-centeredness that wars against the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And it's a pretty robust fight going on. You read, you read this week that Ananias and Sapphira con concocted a ruse between themselves that they would sell some property and then pretend to give all the proceeds to the church. Now, why they did that is not clear from the text, but I can easily imagine why. I bet you can too. I imagine that the conversation between something between the two of them went something like this. Maybe Ananias said to Sapphira, oh, you know, honey, um, our little Joshua is getting ready to go to college next year and times are getting pretty hard. I think it's time that we sell that lake house and, and put some money in the bank. I mean, we'll probably get, you know, like 650 grand for it and, um, you know, we'll give a tenth of it to the church because that's what the law says. So what do you think? Oh, yeah, honey, uh, yeah, I think, I think that's right. But, you know, when Barnabas sold his lake house, he gave all the proceeds to the church. And everybody's just so impressed with him. They can't quit talking about it. And, and he's not the only one. Everyone's doing stuff like that. It's kind of a thing. 
oh, oh I, I know, but, you know, that, we just can't do that. How, how about this? How about we pretend to give all of the money but keep some of it from ourselves, for ourselves, and that way everybody wins and no one's the wiser for it. Oh, yeah, well, you think God might be wise to this little plan? Well, yeah, him being God and all. Yeah, but you know what? He's also merciful. I mean, Jesus died for our sins, so it's kind of like this, this little lie is already covered, right? Oh, yeah, right. And you know what they say? Forgiveness is, is easier than getting permission, especially when it comes to God. So, all right, I'm in. So Ananias went to Peter, and I imagined he said something like this in a very loud voice for everyone to hear. Peter, I just sold my lake house. I got 35 grand for it. And I just want you to bless all my brothers and sisters in need. Hallelujah. <laughs> but Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, was wise to him. And he asked him a very good question. In verse 3, he said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit? You didn't need to give a dime of it. And yet here you are pretending, lying, not only to people, but to God himself. You probably wondered as I did this week, as Peter did, how is it even possible that Satan could fill their hearts if Ananias and Sapphira were part of a spirit-filled church? meaning that they were filled with the Holy Spirit if they were true Christians, and I believe they were. Well, first of all, this filling was not demon possession like we read about in the Gospels where people have no control over themselves. We can choose what we will be filled with, what thoughts and desires will control our minds and what behaviors we will allow ourselves to participate in. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 5.16, he says, So I say, let, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. Now, where Satan comes into the picture is that he knows what our sin-bent nature craves because we all essentially long for the same things. Among other things, we long to feel important, to be significant, to be the heroes right, in our world. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But what Satan does is he comes along and he takes that normal human desire and he twists it in, into a, a competition with other people and even with God for glory, for self-glory. He bends our ears just like he did with Eve. Don't you want to be like God? Satan is a liar, and he gets us to lie to ourselves. That little sin is no big deal. That doesn't hurt anybody. And just look at Barnabas. He's really moving up in the church. You can be a hero like he is. And everybody will talk about how spiritual you are. I think we can all relate, if we're honest, to that sense of competition that goes on in our hearts. We are natural competitors. As women especially, we compete on all kinds of levels, don't we? Our physical appearance, our show, social status, our kids, how good our lives look on Facebook, how many followers we have on Instagram, even our ministries and our um, positions and places in the church. Y'all, we're just messed up. 
and Satan messes with us. Ananias and Sapphira, if they were true believers, had the power within them to resist Satan. But they caved and they fell into what I think Jesus thought was the worst of sins, hypocrisy. Have you ever tried to make yourself look more spiritual than you are? I have, lots of times. Too bad I don't have time to tell you all of the ways. <laughs> I just know that if God treated me like he treated Ananias and Sapphira, I would have been six feet under a long time ago. How about you? Why aren't we? Well, for one thing, God doesn't normally act that way. In fact, in, uh, David declared in Psalm 103, he does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Thank you, God. Or in Psalm 103.10, it says, If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Fear in this context is the sense of honor and worship. So what was going on? Well, as we have said, this was a formative time in all of history. The church had just been born. And I truly believe that God's judgment on Ananias and Sapphira was his protection of his infant church. Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Jesus loves his church. He shed his blood for us to make us holy. He is jealous for us in a good way. And he was not about to let his church become, at the very outset, what Judaism had become, a legalistic, hypocritical system of rules that gave people status in the community according to how well they kept them. He didn't die for that. Jesus died to break down the walls that separate us, and hypocrisy builds them right back up. Walls that say, stay away. I'm holy, and you're not. Or at least I'm a little holier than thou, so you stay down there, and I'll stay up here with the good people. God was having none of it. He was not going to let hypocrisy derail his church as it was just beginning. He was warning us that sin still is a big deal to God. Yes, grace is greater than all of our sin, but never take it for granted. Do not test God by deliberately disobeying and then just thinking you're going to get forgiveness later. That cheapens the cross. It cheapens grace. It cheapens the church. It makes us hypocrites of the worst kind. Jesus said in John 16, 8, that one of the Holy Spirit's roles uh, uh, that would be in our lives would be to convict us of sin, not to condemn us, but to turn us back to God. That's what repentance is. It's turning back to God so that our lives line up with what he died to make us, like his son. When you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, Lean into the power that he gives you to own it. 
to ask forgiveness of God and others, to turn away from it, to make amends if you need to, and then by that same power to let it go so that you can get on with being part of the church. Part of the church as God meant it to be. The church was meant to be attractive to people. One thing that we can't miss in our lesson this week was that as the authentic and generous church lived on, cleansed of the hypocrites, it kept growing and growing and growing. Church is not something we go to. It is something we are. And it has powerful implications of what we do. And that's where we're going now. We're going to shift our focus from what the church is to what the church is called to do. And as we look at the church in Acts, we see that they had this rhythm of coming in together in deep community for prayer and worship and sharing with each other in, in their needs. And then they went out to spread the gospel. They came in and they went out. They came in and they went out. In other words, they didn't get stuck inside their cozy little community so that they never went out. And they didn't get stuck out here thinking they didn't need the church anymore. Their coming together as the church empowered them to go out and do what the church is called to do. It's so easy for us to get ingrown, isn't it? But we need to be reminded that we have a mission and we have the power to carry it out. And so the final piece of our picture of the church is this. The church is a spirit-filled, sacrificial community of imperfect people committed and empowered to spread the gospel. One of the verses that stood out to me this week um, was in chapter 5, verse 20. After the incident of Ananias and Sapphira, the, uh, the apostles went out. America, amazing miracles happened. Um, uh, they were filling Jerusalem with, with the gospel, and the religious elite were filled with jealousy, and so they threw them all in jail again. And then we have Acts 5, 19, and 20. I'm going to read it to you from the message. It says, But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. He said, Go to the temple and take your stand. Tell the people everything there is to say about this life. This life, this miraculous life that we share right now with Jesus and one another. And it is eternal. It just is going to go on into eternity. And so when we tell others about Jesus, it's not just about believe in Jesus so you'll go to heaven when you die. It is that, but it's believe in Jesus so that you can enter into his life now. It's not just a you and Jesus kind of life, although it is personal and it's individual. But it's more importantly, or just as important, it's a Jesus and us kind of life. Because when you belong to Jesus, you belong to his family. And that's why it's so important that we become a healthy family. We'll never be a perfect one. But by the power of the Spirit, we can be a more loving one, a more generous one, a more authentic one. One in which we come together and we go out together. Tell them all of that. All of that. Go to the temple and take your stand, the angel said. The idea of taking your stand sounds like a battle cry, doesn't it? And it is. We have got to take a stand against the voices that would tell us to sit down and shut up about Jesus. 
It may be that little fearful voice in your own head. It's likely that that's Satan. Don't let him win that battle. You can choose what voice you'll listen to. But you know, the voices in our culture have become louder and more powerful to be quiet about Jesus. We are more and more in a very secular culture. Remember that Jesus told Peter one day, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But it will try, my friends. It is trying. But knowing that it will not prevail should encourage us, empower us to go out and be and do what Peter and John did and the other apostles when they said, we must obey God rather than people. Now, the temple was the place where the apostles took their stand because that was their gathering place as Jews. So I'm wondering, what are the gathering places in our day? I'm thinking gyms. I'm thinking bars. I'm thinking workplaces. I'm thinking neighborhoods. What would it look like for you? Compelled by love, encouraged by your church community, and empowered by the Spirit to see your gathering place as the place where you can take your stand for Jesus and his church. I don't have a workplace. Well, I don't have a, a gym. I, I used to, but I kind of fell off that wagon. <laughs> um, but I do have a home. And I walk or run my neighborhood every day. And for at least a year, the Holy Spirit has been nudging me to do something to reach out to my neighbors. And like Jody shared a few weeks ago, I'm so glad she did, I, I kept brushing him off too. Mostly out of fear. Um, fear because it's really hard for me to take initiative when it comes to social gatherings. I fear that no one will come, and then I fear that they will. <laughs> and every introvert in the room said, Amen. Amen. But not too long ago, a neighbor of mine, two doors down, also an IBCer, told me the Spirit was telling her the same thing. And she's not shy. I'm so happy. <laughs> now, she didn't really know what to do or how to do it either, but now we each had a buddy. And that gave us courage to do what the Holy Spirit was nudging us to do. It was, it was that church again, coming together so we can go out. And so Karen and I decided to do a Friday night potluck in September. And we prayed. We prayed that God would bring the right number of people and the right mix of people. We prayed that his spirit would be there to create a bond between us that wouldn't naturally be there between strangers. I mean, we're neighbors, but we're strangers to each other, I hate to say. And then I'll never forget that something sort of awkward just sort of tumbled out of my mouth as we were praying. I would say, oh, God, would you... Um, start something. <laughs> Sounded like a really strange prayer at the time. But you know, God loves to start new things. That's what he did at Pentecost. As we said earlier, he started a movement to draw people from every tongue, tribe, and nation to himself. And you know, as it turned out, there were only 10 people around my dining room table that night, but there were four ethnicities represented there. Italian, Hispanic, Indian, and Texan. <laughs> My friends, 
Jesus told his disciples to go out into all the world to spread the gospel. May I say, God has brought the world to us. And they are longing for real community. They may not know they're longing for Jesus yet, but they are. They are. That Friday night potluck was one of the most delightful evenings of my whole life. We told stories around the table. We laughed at the funny things that have happened to us and the dumb things that we've done. We shared stories that were common to our humanity. And by the end of that evening, the Holy Spirit truly had bound us together in a very unique way. And the four children that were in the other room, ages 4 to 15, got along delightfully together. Not one time in all those hours did any of them come and beg their parents to take them home. <laughs> and there wasn't even a screen on. Y'all, I'm telling you, it was a miracle of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Truly. I think God started something. We're going to get together again this Friday night, and I can't wait. And they can't wait. God is doing something in these days at IBC. He is calling us to go deeper into our community so that we can go farther out into our world. A transformed people for a transformed city. How many times have you heard that? The church is a spirit-filled, sacrificial community of imperfect people committed and empowered to spread the gospel. The key word is spirit-filled. You have no idea how much power you have because the spirit has taken up residence within you. He doesn't overpower you so that you have no choices, but when you lean into him, when you trust in him to do what you cannot do in your own human weakness, nothing will be impossible. We are weak. Fear makes cowards of us all. But he is strong and he is in you. Trust the power you have to go deeper into your church community so that you can go farther out into your world. As you leave today, as you think about these things, ask the Holy Spirit, how do you want me to connect deeper in? How would you have me go farther out? And it's just not me. How would you have us do this? Us do that. Let me pray for you. Holy Spirit, we are weak. We cannot in our own strength conquer our fear or love sacrificially, or overcome temptation, or stand for you in a hostile world. In ourselves, we don't have what it takes to go deeper in to real community life or venture farther out to be agents of rescue in this desperate world on your behalf. We need your help to be the church that Jesus died to save. We need your presence. We need your enabling power. We long for the glorious day when the Father will send Jesus to finally make all things new and set all things right. But until then, Holy Spirit, would you fill us afresh? Would you enable us to trust the power that you've given us so that when Jesus comes again, he will find us faithful, not fearful? united in sacrificial community, completely devoted to him and to one another. 
and to the spread of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's girls said, amen.